From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball, Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you this morning from Huntsman Hall at the Wharton School, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out on the Locust Walk on a gorgeous, I'd say gorgeous, it qualifies gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I Late. mean, it's, if you're into, it's chilly, but I mean, it's well, you know, not it's, raining it's, or it's November. It's November yeah. appropriate yeah, weather. that's right, that's right. That's Shane Jensen you hear over there. You will eventually hear from Eric Bradlow, I suspect, and maybe in the not-too-distant future. We can hear from you. You guys can jump in here. Please join us. The run, the number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or give us an email. Matt Dats will take your email, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle. We're very happy to hear from you up there. Send us your questions, observations, complaints, whatever you got at W Moneyball on Twitter. We have a regular show this morning other than Audie Weiner being out. Audie's out and about doing Audie things. He'll be back. We have guests at the bottom of the first hour and the top of the second hour in their usual slots. We have longtime friend of the show, Bill Conley, coming back to talk to us about all things college football here at the bottom of this hour. And then delighted to have Jack Marucci. Jack is the head athletic trainer down at LSU. Going to have him at the top of the next hour to talk about what's going on in training and sports science in general and LSU in particular. They were the feature of a big article earlier this year on some cool things they're doing in Baton Rouge. Uh, Fellas, between now, open lines up for anything you are particularly interested in. I've got a few things bouncing around. I'm curious what has caught your eye in the world of sports. Well, obviously we're going to spend a lot of time talking about college football, I assume, because there's a lot going on in college football. But I want to start out just quickly with um, tennis, because the ATP finals happened since the last show. You you got us all fired up about this whole tournament structure. Let me say the good news of what happened. So the good news and interesting news. So from my point of view as a Federer fan, uh, Federer went out there, blew the doors off of Djokovic. Which was kind of interesting. You told yeah. us last week that he was committed, publicly committed, and he beat him, I don't remember exactly, let's say 6-3, 6-2. It was not right. a close match. And so, and Federer, I think, I know the stat was the follow to I think he had only five unforced errors in the entire match. Federer said it was probably one of the best matches he ever played. Now, what's interesting is he then advanced to the semifinals. And he had one of the worst matches I've seen him play in a long time. He actually lost to Stefano Tsitsipas from Greece, who ended up winning the title, beating Dominic Thiem. So let's just be clear. Nadal and Djokovic didn't even make to the Final Four. Federer made it to the Final Four, was beaten in the semifinals. Now, Federer says he believes 2020 will be the year finally someone bakes through, potentially, and the big four, big four, if you want to include Andy Murray, do not win all four majors. How long has it been since that happened? I would think the last one is 
Yeah, I'm just trying to decide if there's been one since Del Potro. I was going to say that Del Potro one was. Were we, where, when did War Week? Oh, no, no, no sorry. Up? It would have been Warinka or Mur- well, Murray, if we consider Murray we can, part we of the can, big we four. Can, we include Murray. Warinka would probably be 2014 or 15. I'd say okay. the last five years, essentially, yeah. have been won by all three of them. I think Warinka maybe 15 or something like that. But if you okay. include War- Murray and Warinka in that, then the last one is certainly Del Potro, which is 10 years ago. Okay. And I mean, I, the, one, one, one of the big kind of structural differences is the majors have, you know, it's three sets instead of two to win, right? Right, so, it's best of five. So, I mean, you could imagine that that helped kind of Federer against Djokovic in general, right? He but, was going to be Djokovic that day anyway. Yeah. But what I will say is the following. Here's the problem. And I said it last week and I'll say it yeah. again. You have to beat probably all three of them because of the way the seeding goes. Federer's going to be, let's say Djokovic's going to be one, Nadal's going to be two, Federer's going to be three. So that means Djokovic and Nadal are on separate sides of the draw. So you're going to have to beat one of them to even get to the semifinals, yeah. probably. Yeah. That it's just, you can't beat, can you beat two or three of them in the same tournament? That's yeah. going to be the challenge. And and, and I, I guess with, with that as the kind of, you know, the need, what what you need to do, does it actually – it probably hurts more to have to do that in a best of five sets as well, opposed to a best of three sets. That's the topic sets. I wanted to bring up was fatigue because yeah. um, you guys would agree that Nadal has been a pretty good tennis player, correct? Yeah, he's been okay. Yeah. What's interesting is he's never actually won this tournament, and he's played in it, I think, 15 times. Now, what's interesting about Jeez. that is that what happens is is that at the end of the season, who do you trust more, 38-year-old Federer? Or 21-year-old Stefano Tsitsipas. And by the way, not saying Federer didn't want to win. Of course Federer wanted to win. But was he willing to put everything into winning this tournament? No. No. And so it wasn't just effort. It is, at the end of the season, these old guys are tired. Yeah. And you know what? They're thinking (laughs) the, the Australian Open's coming up in four or five weeks six weeks, I'd rather be ready for the Australian Open for sure. than win another match we, at the we, ATP Finals. And you know what? I'm old, and I've played 50 matches this yep. season. I'm done. I'm we, enough. It's enough. We talked some about this last week, and you convinced us that they cared a lot about this, but there's just no way they care at the same level that they care about the majors. Well, let me just be clear. Federer cared a huge amount to beat Djokovic that to get match. some that yeah, one yeah. match, and he won it, and he won it convincingly. Nadal cared a lot because by Federer beating Djokovic, Nadal ended up the year number one. He didn't even make the semifinals, but by Federer beating Djokovic, that eliminated Djokovic. So Nadal cared a lot about being the number one. But otherwise, none of them could care at all about this tournament. So by the way, Warinka won the U.S. Open in 2016. So it's only been three full seasons that we've gone without somebody other than If that's 2016, yeah, then it would be three. So it's been 12 straight. Let me ask you a question about tennis. When you started out talking about the Federer-Djokovic match... You said, you know, he played amazing, and then you gave the score. Before you gave the score, I was wondering, how would we know, without looking at the score, how amazingly he played? So one way of asking it is, what, what's the best you could predict the outcome of match from a from a set of more fundamental statistics. Yeah, is it unforced errors? Is it like, like what are the what's best the model? kind of... What's the yeah. model, and then how well does it do? Well, the problem with tennis is there's some statistics I could give you that are almost tautological to what happens in the match. Like, for example, if I give you percentage of points won on first serve, percentage of points won on second serve, you know, and then the reverse on the opposite player, well, then it's not... Yeah, depends how the points are distributed yeah, amongst sure. the games, but... Yeah, no, we don't, we don't want yeah. that. I want something more fundamental than that. Yeah. So it, most the, the stat that you hear all the time, obviously, it's going to be winners to unforced errors, okay. right? How many winners did you hit? How many unforced errors did you give up? Something about first serve. 
Well, it's going to be even to say first serve percentage yeah. would be yeah. a very good one. Yeah. Um, I think Federer won some ungodly number. Like I think in the first, I think he may have only lost like six or seven points in his first serve entirely in the match. Like it was something ridiculous where it was like every statistic that you know, if you put up the the IBM stats of what he needs to win the match. Like, he was, like, in his far right tail of the distribution on every single one of them. Like, he, everything was working for him. Okay, but so far we've only come up with three numbers that are more fundamental. It's like the percentage of first serves, the something about winners, and something about unforced errors. Those are the three fundamentals that we have to work with? That's, I, it's fine if that's what it is, but is, would, there, is, there anything, is there anything else? Well, I mean, it's, for some players it's different. For some players I would imagine number of aces would probably be just, you know, how many points do I win outright okay, on the serve? Okay, That's going to come in reliable That's going to come in fairly Maybe reliable. Maybe not big, but it's going to come in significant. Okay. So we have four. Now, with those four stats, how well do you think you could predict the outcome of a match? Just the winner alone. Like that model, fit that model as well as you can, and then what? how... How how often is it going to accurately predict who wins the match? I think if I looked at both players, winners and unforced errors, I'm I'm just making up a number, eighty percent, eighty five. Pretty high, yeah. pretty high. Pretty but high. I uh, but it, okay. Oh, well, to you, it's interesting. To you, it's interesting because if you asked most of our listeners here in Morton Moneyball, I would think they would say that's it. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm moving off of fifty fifty. So I mean, right, right. And it's very hard to get far in the tails. I'm going to guess somewhere between seventy five and eighty percent just from those okay. two stats. Okay. Yeah. That's What's interesting. also interesting is for. People think it's easy to hit lots of winners and not give up a lot of unforced errors. Actually, when that's over 50%, you've actually played a great match in any point in time. So it's also, for example, 20 winners, 10 unforced errors. I would say you have a 95% chance of winning that match. Okay, got it. Yeah, so the nonlinearities would be interesting. You could probably build a model that was a little more subtle that could do some things. All right, outside of tennis? Well... If we're going to just quickly get rid of a bunch of sports that we're not going to talk that much about. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Start at the bottom of the list. Well, yeah. Start at the bottom. You... Well, I mean, Adi's not here. I wish he were here. But, you know, the Hall of Fame ballot did come out in baseball. Yeah. So just so quickly, everyone's talking about Jeter, right? Well, Jeter, this... Yeah. So, look, I, here's what I hope. And I say this as a diehard Yankee fan, which people know. I really hope Derek Jeter is not unanimously put in the Hall of Fame. He I wish... will not be. He won't be. Good. He doesn't deserve to be. <laughs> will, he be first, Agreed. will he be first Agreed. ballot? Yeah. Oh, come yes. on. Yeah, he will be first. He's, well, I think he's number sixth all time in hits. He has five championship rings. He okay. was a, I mean, I don't know. What I think percentage he, of guys who make the Hall of Fame make it in the first ballot? I actually don't know the number. Audie would know that, but uh, I would say probably like, I mean, certainly less than 20%, right? I was going to guess oh, higher right. than that. Oh, really? I was going to guess if the, of the first ballot Hall of Famers. I was, maybe. I, let's put it this way. It's between his lower bound of 20% and may, or his 15%. I was thinking 25% okay. somewhere in that I, range. I was thinking below 33 but I really had no idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're in the 20s. But no, no. He's a clear first ballot yeah. Hall of Famer. Yeah. Anybody I mean, else got, interesting well, this year? I mean, we go back to it. Do Clemens and Bonds get into the Hall uh, of Fame? I mean, they were both guys, at 60% yeah. last year, roughly, 59%. Remind, how many years and how many years do they have left? What I have written down, I, I, I'm just going to make sure. I have written down that this is their eighth year, yeah. which means they have this year and two more yeah. to make it. The other person, of course, very interesting, is Kurt Schillen. Yes. And he's actually, he had more than Clemens and Bonds last year. He's also in his eighth year. Mm-hmm. So my view is none of them are going to get in. Like, if they get in, it'll be probably in their 10th year and their last year. 
I don't think they'll jump from 50. Look, they haven't played more games. Yeah. There's nothing new that's been revealed. I don't think you move from 58, 59% to 75%. I think Jeter might be the only one that goes yeah, in this I, year. I mean, with with, uh, with Bonds and Clemens, it's very hard for me to predict because you're really kind of trying to model, like, almost trends in, like, you know, kind, you know, uh, political trends, political trends. Yeah. yeah, trends, and maybe that's actually more much of what's kind of opposing Schilling right now too. I mean, Bonds, it, it, but those those are two, the two clusters. Yeah, Bonds and Clemens, like obviously on paper, have a Hall of Fame resume. They would be in that top. T- I mean, if we were voting without any politics at all, just based on their they performance, would they would be first ballot and unanimous and unanimous Hall of Famers. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, mean, Roger Clemens was the greatest pitcher of the of the last half of the 20th century, and Barry Bonds, arguably by every stat, except for maybe Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, number one hitter in the history of baseball. So we're left modeling like the collective political dynamics of the right. Hall of Fame voters, and I just don't know what to do with that. I mean, I think it would be ridiculous if they didn't end up in the Hall of Fame, it's, just it's, as a, you know, the Hall of Fame is a summary of what's actually happened in the sport. It's, it's incredibly strange that they're not there. Schilling would have been on the line anyway. It's not just the politics, it's the dynamics of yeah. the change yeah. in politics. So yeah. by the way, there are 226 players in the Hall of Fame. 54 of them got in on their first ballot, which okay. is right at 24%. Yeah. So in nice, terms of, nice. we collectively right. came up with about the right number. All right, others. Well, let me just now turn to college football for a minute. That's not a small sport we're not going to talk about. All right, well, go ahead. Go. well, you can go to college football for a minute. Um, wow, did, you know, not, because you know I wanted to cast, boy, did Baylor blow it. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they destroyed your dream scenario? They didn't destroy it, but now I'm starting to look around and I'm thinking, there's a pretty good chance the Big 12 may not have anybody in. I mean, if you look at the rankings, I'd be interested to see how Massey Peabody has updated the you know what quartet is likely to get in. But now, like, first, put it this way. I don't see a scenario where at least one Big 10 team. Can everyone agree to that? At least one Big yeah. 10 team is going to be in? yeah. yeah. Well, Either Penn the, State, Ohio Minnesota, State. or Ohio State. One You're, of them, at least. <laughs> yeah, Ohio State's going to be that team, but okay, sure. Yeah. No, no, at least one. No, there's only going to be one. Well, wait. What? No, no, you're saying that with certainty. Let me just say, you know, the line, do you know what the Ohio State Penn State line is? It's got to be week? like 17. It's 18 points. Oh, well, I was said 17. It's not a uh, bad guess. Yeah. It's a great guess. But I'm just saying, if Penn State or Minnesota somehow beats Ohio State, could there not be two Big Ten teams in? Sure, it's possible. Of course, it's possible, right? And mm-hmm. I think we all agree Clemson is going. Yep. Okay. And then, well, what if NC State beats Clemson in the well, ACC championship? Well, maybe that. No, no, maybe that. <laughs> could we not see two? Well, no, could we, could. we could. We could see that. We could that see could that. That could be a seventeen point. Maybe that's a seventeen point spread. Yeah, they can't lose. And so, if you're going to come up with obscure scenarios, we can come up with Clemson no, no, dropping no, 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 the right. game. No, well, I mean, but let's assume Clemson doesn't drop a game for a second. Obviously, some SEC team is going to go. Yeah. But could we end up in a scenario where Georgia beats the beats LSU, let's say, in the championship game? Mm-hmm. Of course. And that, yeah, very much that could happen. Then do both of them go? We don't know. Well, if both of them go, if LSU stays undefeated until the game, and then Georgia beats LSU, we have Georgia, LSU, Clemson, and the Big Ten team, which means no Big 12, no Pac-10, 12, or whatever they're calling it now. Okay, so where are you going with this, Eric? You're just conjuring I'm, this obscure possibility. Actually, that obscure, that's though. the most likely. No, it's not the most. Georgia's not likely to beat LSU. The most likely is Ohio State goes in, Clemson goes in, 
LSU, LSU goes in. And, and then Oklahoma. the whole then the whole question is who's the fourth? That's what that's by far the most likely thing. And then we have a very interesting set of possibilities. It depends on what OU does for the rest of the year. It depends on if Utah makes it through. It depends on what happens with you Alabama an, and how Georgia plays out the rest of the year. Do you have any belief about any one loss team that controls their own destiny from that set? No. So no, you don't have no, so even o- think, Oklahoma winning out doesn't they're not. I think no, I don't I don't I, don't, no. I think how these things go, it's going to be a beauty pageant. I mean, how do how does the committee treat the loss of Tua? They're gonna they're gonna discount Alabama to some extent. Mm-hmm. It hurts their cases big big time. Yeah. Um. So it's the politics of let's say Utah, let's say Oklahoma, let's say Alabama, and Oregon probably. Well, Utah. I'm not saying yeah, Oregon, or the winner of that, but Utah's so, perceived to be the stronger team, and they'll be the favorite in that game. So I'm giving you the best of the Pac-12, okay. the best of the Big Twelve, and Alabama. And I think that's very likely to be something, something like that. And that's a real question, and that's a more or less a beauty if, pageant question. If Tua hadn't gotten injured, would we even be talking about like yeah. Utah and yeah, all those? Do I think you think so. we would? Yeah, okay. I, I, I would probably privilege Alabama, yeah. but, but um, we'd still be talking about okay. it. Does Alabama right. have any big-time games left? Like, who could they Auburn. be? Okay. I mean, Auburn is so much better than the Reds. This I happens know, every year. Auburn's always like number 10 best team in the country. And, and with three losses, losses. Right, yeah, three or four losses. So that's also, and then the last thing that, I don't know, tons of things caught my eye. I've got a whole list here. But the other thing was in the NFL. So here's what I didn't understand, okay? This was so anti-Wharton Moneyball that it bothered me. Yeah, matter of fact, I should have tweeted it. I apologize. I should have tweeted it at W Moneyball. The Chiefs are playing the Chargers, okay? There's two minutes, 20 seconds left in the game. This is Monday night in Mexico Mon- City. Monday night in right? Mexico yeah. City. The Chiefs are up by seven points, Okay. They're at, I think, the 45-yard line, the opposing 45-yard line. So they're over midfield. They have fourth and two. The other team has no timeouts left. Okay? So if they get two yards, the game's over. Yeah. They punted the ball. So they punted the ball. The classic thing happens. The other team's playing, Kansas City's playing prevent defense. Turns out Chargers drove all the way down the field. If Philip really? Rivers had thrown a Kansas City's pick, prevent defense does not prevent much. I think correct. we've learned that over right. the last no, no, couple so seasons. If you look at Kansas City's offense yeah. versus Kansas City's defense, oh, here's the thing. No, let's just all be clear. Let's be yeah. clear. Yeah, it was... Literally, the game is over. I'm not saying, well, it's sort of over. You kneel on the football yeah. three times if they gain two yards on that fourth and two play. Andy Reid punts the football. And it's so, but, just but, a bad play. And, and you can just, it's not hard to see the intuition of, okay, say, what if they don't get it? Okay, so what's the difference in probability of a touchdown if they start at, at the their 10 own 42? Yard line, right. yeah. and there's no guarantee they're going to be at the 10. No, I mean, the expected, right. the expected field position in that situation is probably the 15. Correct. So, so how much is that 25 yards worth? Or 30 In yards. terms of probability of touchdown. It's not that Correct. they needed a field goal. They needed a touchdown. Correct. This versus, came up, I feel like, yeah. almost a, a, a very similar scenario. I don't think it was quite game would have been over if they'd made it scenario. But in the Dallas game as well, I think Dallas was up yes. and chose to punt at in, in a very similar scenario. And I was screaming at the TV as well that I they, they should have – I mean, you've got you, – it's out, Dallas is Ezekiel Elliott, and you can't gain like two. It was like fourth and three or something like that at – you know, in – well, I mean, it would actually would have been something like a sixty-plus yard field goal. So they were even on the, you know, on on the other team's side of the ball, and they chose to punt instead. Point's important. No, I, I'm just saying they needed a touchdown. If it's yeah. a field goal, I get it, but they needed a touchdown. Yeah. And you know, getting from the fifteen to the forty, I'm, I'm not saying those are free yards, but they're going to basically uh, give you those yards anyway. It just yeah. seemed like a very and also and another strange call about five minutes earlier. So the Chargers scored to go down, scored a touchdown. To go down by nine, 
with, let's say, six minutes left in the game. They went for two. Now, wait a second here. If they miss... You can tie it with a free kick. Well, you can. <laughs> but if they miss that two, which they made, by the way, but if they miss it, they're down nine. They're down two scores with about five minutes left. Yeah. So why would you go for two there? Like, you think there's that much difference between being down eight versus seven right there? I understand you're going to need two at one of the two times. But that also seemed to me to be a very strange choice. Yeah. With, like, to potentially give, lead yourself, like, you know, two-point conversions are, what, 50% conversion, somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you have a 50% chance that you're still down two scores with five minutes left. That seemed like a very strange choice on the part of the Chargers. Mm-hmm. So I was watching the last five minutes of the game saying, I don't care who wins, but, boy, both these coaches need to have something. Yeah. I mean, they need somebody with some analytics needs to be screaming in their ear, go for one. Go for the go for the fourth down. Don't punt the ball here. Well, you know, there's there there obviously been a lot of talk about this lately. But even just this past week, there have been some good analytics on the changes in fourth down decisions. Just if we take that yeah. as a as a right. proxy for the extent to which they're analytics based in some of these in game decisions, and how that's changed over you know the last ten years, say. There's that because, night, that was there was that good article that kind of like took it back to that one Belichick decision back yeah, in the Indianapolis Colts game. This is Brian Burke of yeah. ESPN. He had a nice piece on this talking about the changes. You know, basically he takes it all the way to 2001, but then he highlights okay since Belichick made that decision, which was very high profile and didn't work out. I you know he wants to give credit to that. I think I think that's I don't think that's right, because I don't think that's the way change happens. Change happens whenever the data build up for a while and then the anecdotes. Break in the data. Just to remind me, Belichick went for it like on fourth and one from his own thirty or something. Wasn't it, it a play like, like it was that? actually? Was, it wasn't even fourth away. It was fourth and like something like six or seven. But I think from his own like thirty or thirty-five. Exactly. Okay, yeah, that's, that's right. my remembrance that's of right. the play. It was fourth and two on their own oh. twenty-eight. All right. Okay. There so you go. so right. it was it was highly unusual uh, that deep in his own side of the field. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you need. This is the sad thing about having data on your side. It's not enough to have data on your side. You need the anecdotes to break your way. So this was a very high-profile anecdote that goes against you. It set, I think it set the whole thing back. What made the difference, in my mind, is the 2017 Eagles. Because they were, uh, one yeah, of, they right. were league leaders in, in, in being in, in consistent with the, with the fourth down bot. Now, I'm not saying they're following the fourth down bot, but they have some model like the fourth down bot. They were more recent analysis. Just the they last. They took every chance they could in that Super Bowl, and it worked. Well, out. this is the thing. They played it all year. Yeah. But then on the Super Bowl stage, yeah. they were demonstrating mm-hmm. it in a big mm-hmm. way. And and the critical thing, Shane, was it worked they, out that they yeah, won. Yeah. So this is this yeah. is what this is. I mean, you, yeah. We we disparage anecdotes as analysts as we should, but you need them. You need the thing to break in your way. I'll tell you the plot I want to see, and I'm gonna maybe Zach Drapkin or someone can produce this plot for us on the X axis. I want the change in win probability. On the y-axis, I want the change in the person. I want the probably the person actually does the most preferred play. Yeah, that's the plot I want to see because you would assume. Let's for assume for the moment but that then, it's, then you want that for different teams. No, or no, you want I, that over time. That's fine. Well, it's going to be increasing. No, no. What's, what, what's going to be interesting about that graph? It's oh, going to be increasing. Well, you make that assumption. Let's assume there's enough data to make it increasing. I think it's. I think there's going to be a tremendous nonlinearity in it, and that's what I'm interested in seeing. Like there'll be nothing for a long time. Correct. Yeah, it's going yeah. to be Very flat, convex. and then it's going to go up. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's that's why I want to see what this plot that is. is interesting. True. And that's why yeah. I was thinking. So let's imagine I'm screaming at the TV because Andy Reid didn't go for it. Well, how much win probability did he give up? Let's say it's five yeah. or ten percent. Now, by the way, we all agree 
that's a lot to give up. You give up 5-10% every game, you're going to win one or two less games over a course of 16 games. But if he, let's say it was a 40% differential, is there is it 95% he would have taken it? I'm, yeah. just, I'm really interested, because I agree with you, Kate, I think it's going to be flat. And then I think it's going to head up. Yeah. And then you'd want to know, how does it look for different coaches? How does it look over time? There have been some neat graphs. Can you, yeah, like can you predict deviations from it based on their kind of job security, right? I mean, the one of the reasons, I mean, Belichick was able to survive something like going for it for fourth and two from his own 20, even though it did not work out actually an outcome because he's got essentially more, much more job security than any other coach. True, and that surely helped on that occasion, but he's one of the league he's the least likely in the yeah, lead he's literally right. one of the last few yeah least likely to follow the analytics prescriptions I, I, these yeah. days i want to actually flip this question but i want to talk about the same graph for a second so obviously Cade with massey peabody you guys build models that predict decisions and outcomes etc could you use this curve to try to say hey wait a second here Let's imagine this is nowhere near a 45 degree line let's even imagine for some reason it wasn't particularly monotone could you use this to say maybe my model's not properly calibrated? In other words, if what coaches are doing is so much different, because remember, what's on the x-axis is going to be a model-based estimate, yeah. probably of the. If assuming it is, if it's a model-based estimate of the change in win probability, maybe this is a wonderful diagnostic for hey, the coach knows something that's not inside the model. Mm-hmm. So. I think that it it's very interesting, and it and has to be the case that the model's super parsimonious. I mean, no, no. it's completely. It's I'm with you. It's completely yeah. independent of any of any game context other than the most basic game context, which is fine as a general benchmark. But if you're you know if you're coaching these situations, you want to consider many other things, and sometimes those many other considerations wash out the base rates more than they should. This is what drives analysts crazy. But you have to grant a coach. The, the ability to say, well, in this situation, because of right. this factor, I'm going to no. override. And so you want to model. So you so you don't want to grant them all that on an idiosyncratic case-by-case basis. You want to say, coach, what other factors do you want in here? Let's bake it in so we can give you the algorithm. Now, you might still override it, <clears throat> but we want as many right. of your – so it's interesting because – I just thought it would be a neat plot to flip it and turn yeah. it around. Well, like, maybe this would say something about the model. Well, it, I think – but, you, you know, the question is how many teams are actually building those more nuanced models. And I do know that there are some that are, yeah. but many aren't. It's just coaches that are doing it intuitively. And so one of the interesting figures that came out this this past week, been, some guys have been doing this on, online. So Stathole Sports does some really cool stuff, at Stathole Sports. Great follow on, on, on in football Twitter. He ran some stuff where he says, okay, let's, let's look at how this thing's changing over time. And you really see from 2009 to 2019, it grows a little bit, but it really is the spike from the Eagles in 2017, followed by league-wide increases in 18 and 19. But then he flipped it around and said, okay, what about teams that go for it even when the bot doesn't say go for it? So the, who do you think the leader is on this? The, one of the leaders is, the, the leaders are the Ravens and the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And they're two of the most analytic. We, we believe them to be two of the most analytically sophisticated leagues t- teams out there. Those are, those are teams with a staff more than capable of building a more sophisticated bot than the New York times built. So 
I don't think it's because they're like crazy aggressive. I think it's because they have a more nuanced model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was I, that's why when I, I don't say sometimes when you're on the radio, you're proud of yourself for thinking of something like let's forget about using it to evaluate the coaches, which didn't think. Let's flip it and think yeah. of it as a way to yeah. evaluate the model. And I agree with you. Given the Ravens and the Eagles organizations, it would be hard to believe that they're just I'll call it irrational. I'm looking at the y-axis here, twenty to twenty-five percent of the time. That could be, but that would seem to me an extraordinarily high rate of mistake, like going against the odds, unless you're right, as you said, Kay, that they know something to put into the model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the, the Burke article, just to wrap this piece up and then, we'll, and then we'll hop away, but the Burke article, Burke went on to say, look, over this period of time, these like 18, 19 years, we can also evaluate organizations, like who were the early adopters, hmm. who, who's late to the party but come in and, and who's not improving, some organizations going the wrong way. So it was interesting that Brian took it to that next level. And of course, it's hard to characterize an, a, a franchise over an 18, 19 year period. There aren't that many that have that much continuity. You're almost talking about ownership at that point. Yep. And some owners are a little more actively involved than others. But just to name that kind of both ends of the, of the distribution, this is according to Brian's take on the data, right? So he says early adopters, Browns, Chiefs, and Ravens. Which kind of makes sense, even though Andy Reid gets a lot of he gets a lot of flack this is for off, us. This is a fourth down? This is fourth down, but presumably, presumably that's kind of a you know, a signal of analytics more generally. Mm-hmm. And then going the wrong way, Cowboys, Jaguars, and Rams. And that Rams thing, you know, Sean McVay is such a kind of paradox. He's and, an enigma, definitely. Because he was so advanced in some ways and he's so backwards in other ways. It seems that way in a way. And the Cowboys are just super disappointing because, I mean, when, when Garrett was hired in, he was thought to be, you know, cerebral and kind of cutting edge. And this has been a while, but that's what, the way he was thought of early on. Remember, Jones locked him up as a head coach. He was kind of head coach in waiting. He, he right. kept him from that's moving. Right. And, and he just, you know, he's, he's been a solid coach down there, but he's not. It's amazing how much you fall off that cutting edge, how quickly. Football yeah. moves so fast, you fall off that cutting edge really and they, quickly. And they've sort of, I mean, they've definitely, I mean, this year has been very interesting to watch Dallas specifically because they have replaced their offensive coordinator, and that was a big complaint from, you know, for the last few and years that they had very unimaginative offense, essentially. Right. And and you certainly see a difference this year. They are doing incredibly well on offense uh, because of, I, I think in large part, because of Kellen, what Kellen Moore is doing down there. But then those 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 fourth down decisions, the go-for-two decisions, yeah, no, they're are still, still, those are still yeah, head no, no, coach decisions. No, that's right. That's right. They're, I mean, they're still quite conservative in those kind of, you know, fourth down type situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, fellas. Well, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and colleagues here at the Wharton School, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, our fourth collaborator out and about today. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here too. Give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on email, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Or reach out on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle up there at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We follow the world of sports and sports analytics. Good way to stay in touch with that stuff. Also a good way to reach out to us. In this next quarter, 
Bill Connolly's joining us. Bill, a longtime friend of the show, one of the great analysts working in football. He is a college football writer for ESPN. He's the author of Football Study Hall. The, he's also the author of a, a book called The 50 Best, asterisk, College Football Teams of All Time, which is a great read. Bill, welcome back. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Regular week for you? Normal stuff? Uh, no, I, I am in the Bristol Doubletree Hotel. Get out. Go to work for a little bit longer and I'm flying home. Oh my goodness! You're up there. You're 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 doing ESPN things, man. You didn't just like maintain the normal life and just move your platform. You're actually <laughs> visiting Connecticut. Well, I'm not going to pretend I'm here every week or anything, but but yes, technically yes. Just setting lifestyle now. Okay, so what what are you what are, what are you doing What are you doing this week? Give us a day in the life of Bill Conley in Bristol, like t- yesterday. <laughs> what did you do What did you do yesterday in Bristol? Uh, yesterday, I met with a few editors. I did a uh, hit on the Daily Wager. Uh, I wrote, touched out the bones of. Oh, Bill, you're cutting out. You're cutting out bad. We're losing you on the reception. So you you met with some editors, and then yes. you did it. You did a hit on a gambling show. You're not. You're 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 selling your soul to the gambling side of things now. What else? What else you got? Um, I, I ate at the lovely cafe, had some meetings, for, uh, just good things, good things in general. That sounds good. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get a better connection to us. We're talking to Bill Conley. Bill is a longtime college football writer. He was with SB Nation for a long time. Started out with actually Football Outsiders. Aaron Schatz hired him back in the day. Aaron gets credit, and mm-hmm. Aaron's, yep. Aaron's coaching tree, if you will, is pretty impressive. Bill being one of them. Bill moved to ESPN in this past off season. He writes um, college football. He's, he, he does a lot of analytics, but they consider him a writer. And he's occasionally up there. He's based in Columbia, Columbus, Columbus, Columbia, Missouri. Why am I losing my – where is the University of Missouri again? Columbia. Columbia, exactly. Yeah. Columbia, Missouri, but in Bristol, Connecticut today. Or Do we have you back, Bill? <laughs> I guess apparently the cell signal isn't very good here. <laughs> well, glad to have you back. Um, okay, Bill. Listen, we want to hear a little bit from you about, and we want to hear as much as possible from you about the college football. Let's see how much we can talk, how much we can learn from you about college football. Let's do the top of the list first, and let's get it out of the way. Let's talk about the playoff, and then let's move on, okay? So we know that it's going to be Ohio State, Clemson, LSU. Yeah. I mean, assuming LSU can get by Georgia, but not even assuming that. LSU is going to get in. They could lose to Georgia, and they're still going to make it. So those three teams are in. The other contenders seem to be Oklahoma, if they make it through, Alabama, even though they don't have Tua anymore, and the winner of the Pac-12, either Utah or Washington, if they remain, you know, with with their well, Ooh, one Oregon, loss record. Oregon, Oregon, I, Oregon I, I don't mean Washington. I don't mean Washington. Oregon and and Utah is the the favorite to come out of that. So let's take the 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 uh, Oregon Utah winner, Oklahoma, Alabama, and let's assume that they're vying for the four spot. Do you have any thoughts on how this should go? And then the other question I want to ask is, what chances do you think Georgia has against LSU in the SEC title? Well, I mean, I'll answer the second one first. I think Georgia's got a very good shot because their defense is incredible. Um, I, I hate watching Georgia play, and LSU is part of the reason why. LSU proved that if you, you know, modernize and actually play optimistic offensive football, you can get even better. You don't have to do lowest common denominator stuff like Nick Saban circa 2011 or whatever anymore. You can actually open things up and get even better as a program, risk-free, kind of, well, not risk-free, but uh, with minimal risk. 
and they still play lowest common denominator, burly man ball football, where once they're up 10 points, they're done scoring. And mm-hmm. uh, that's frustrating, but when they've got that defense, it works. They haven't allowed more than 20 points all year, and the 20 points was the weird South Carolina game that included three picks. So um, if they hold, you know, they're basically a, a kind of a, a, a team like Auburn, except with a better and more efficient run game. And uh, Auburn almost beat LSU, so they have a very good shot. Um, but you're right. I think if Georgia wins, then <clears throat> among other things, that probably takes out a lot of drama here because I think LSU probably is in regardless, and that's your four at that point. You think so, Georgia, a one loss Georgia that beats LSU is a clear choice over like Oklahoma other, or and a, right? And a one loss yeah. LSU yeah. is also a clear choice over conference champs, let's say Utah and Oklahoma. I think so. It seems like if you're first at this point in the year, especially like two weeks from now, I don't think you're fine, unless Georgia wins like 56-3 to three or something, which obviously they probably won't do. Among other things, they're not scoring 56. So, um, you know, at that point, it kind of figures that, that yeah, you, those are your four. Okay, and, Bill, um, real quickly, back on Georgia-LSU, you've made a case for it being interesting, and like this is, that's like, you know, appointment football. But if you had to guess how that's going to go, because Georgia hasn't played an offense like LSU. Nobody has. Right. They're the best in the in the country, and they're one of the best we've seen for a little while. And they... You know, how do you think that's going to go? Yeah, I mean, I do think LSU is better. Like, not, not a ton better. I think I've got them third in SP Plus and Georgia's fifth. So, I mean, it is pretty close. And, and for whatever frustrations Georgia's offense has, uh, LSU offers a similar number of defensive frustrations at the moment. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think they, they do have more weapons uh, to throw to than any team Georgia's faced. And they can also run once the numbers in the box are friendly. So even if Georgia is able to contain big plays, that's what they do so well. Uh, they, I mean, you just do not get 20-yard gains on Georgia, and you have to be very, very patient in moving the ball. But Burrow's kind of proven he can be patient. The Auburn game proved a lot to me, and even though it was a narrow win because they had to scrap and, and kind of go to plan B and yeah. do all these other things, and it worked. Yeah. You, you know, let's stay with the let's stay with the top the headliners here because what we haven't seen is any of these very top-tier play each other yet and with ohio state clemson and lsu separating themselves so clearly at least now with Tua down with those three separating themselves seemingly what do you anticipate as we see some of those guys start playing each other i started thinking about that you know whoever gets the one seed has a real advantage because they don't have to play one of those other two guys right. in the mm-hmm. first round that two three is going to be it could easily be a national Brutal. championship yeah, game. Yeah. so if, but as you i mean ohio, they, these guys haven't i mean lsu's earned their stripes this year ohio state right. and clemson have not but they look spectacular Anything interesting as you think about those three teams vying against each other? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because if you take resume out of the picture, I think Ohio State and Clemson are better than LSU right now, mainly because LSU's defense is the weakest unit of any of those three teams. Right, right. Because Clemson has, hey, shock and surprise, we've never seen this before. Clemson waited until somebody made them bleed and then went into fifth gear and has scored 45-plus every single week since the North Carolina you, game. You've been singing that song for years. It's amazing how consistent. You, your out-of-sample prediction on that pattern is very strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and uh, it frustrates me because I I want to be able to, like, dive into the whys at some point of how do they manage to – and we're still only talking about four years. So, it's, yeah, we're not talking about some, you know, massively statistically significant sample here, but it does the, – the trend holds. They, they clearly – do what a bunch of coaches say they do and, and try to get their team to peak in November, except they do it. Um, and, and this year, you know, what, the main issues for the early struggles were just that it was like Trevor Lawrence was trying to throw passes he thought a number one pick should throw early in the year. Oh, interesting. Getting, 
and getting baited into mistakes and, and um, just kind of trying too hard, it seemed like. The last five, six games, he's like, well, that guy's double covered and uh, this really fast running back just drifting and flaring out into the, the open, uh, wide open. I'm going to throw it to him for 17 oh, yards. interesting. Okay. Does and, Clemson think differently about scheduling? Like, I mean, because this is kind of a very, I mean, I know this is done years in advance, but, you know, you could sort of imagine that they, you know, if, if they really kind of put – peaking in November or December as a priority for their organization, they might actually think a little bit more about scheduling than maybe some other teams do. Yeah, they chose yeah. to be in the ACC where it didn't matter. Well, that, 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 was, uh, that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, in like 2016, my numbers had ACC number one. It's just the last two That's years. That's right. Been I know. That's fair. Dreadful the last two years as a conference. But it is funny because, uh, you know, you would think if you're worried about, you know, peaking late, then you wouldn't schedule teams like Auburn or Texas A&M right at the beginning of the year, and they do that. Um, and and they survive. They don't necessarily look amazing, but they survive those games. Um, and then, yeah, it really is just like they cruise along in third gear until they have a reason not to. And and then they tighten the rotation and make some offensive tweaks and and go right along their merry way. And and yeah, we're with for both Clemson and Ohio State because they haven't played one of these top teams. That means a they haven't had a marquee chance to show off in a while. And Ohio State gets but, theirs this weekend. Yeah, Bill. So this is Eric Browder. That was going to be exact. Thank you for the softball. That was. <laughs> <laughs> going to be exactly mixing sports here. That was going to be exactly my question. What is it that you look at that suggests that Clemson and Ohio State are good, maybe even elite, maybe even better than LSU, as you said, when they really haven't played anybody? Like, do I need a mathematical model to sort all this out, which is what, of course, ESPN's Football Power Index does, Massey Peabody does. That's or, what Bill's S&P right, does. Uh, right. Yeah. Or do you just, you know, what have you seen that makes you think that they're actually in this elite set? The math is certainly a good backup. Um, and, I mean, just the score lines. I mean, they're, not, they're playing their second string for most of the second half, but they beat you know, Florida State by 31, and then, and then 35, 43, 45, 45, 49. You know, I've always – one of the things I've leaned on for a long time now is, it's, is how you play is more important than who. And because we have good math at our disposal now, we can still glean, like, okay, Boston College is only 64th, but beating them 50-7 to – is still something a really good team does, you know that kind of thing. You you can still adjust for opponent and get a lot of value out of these games. That's so a really important point, Bill. Could you yeah. just elaborate on that for our listeners here? Because that's a lot of people will say, you know, what's the difference whether I beat Boston College or whoever, thirty to seven, twenty four to seven, fifty to seven? Isn't it all just a big blowout kind of win? Well, I, that let's w- point out the Bills the the podcast that he did with Stephen Godfrey for years was titled "Podcast Ain't Played Nobody," <laughs> basically on exactly this point. Um, yeah. But let's let me just reintroduce real quickly. We're talking to Bill Connolly. Bill is college football writer for ESPN, longtime college football writer, SB Nation before. He's a great follow on Twitter at ESPN underscore Bill C, Bill C at ESPN underscore Bill C. So you're 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 claiming, and and there's a lot of evidence at this point to to justify that you can you can pull a signal out of these weaker schedules. There are occasional exceptions to that, but you know Ohio State's an interesting example of a team. That had the opposite problem. They're, they're, what year was that where they, they won the national championship? Did they win it? They All year, they're undefeated. They won all their games by like one and two points, 14 to 13 and all that stuff. And we were like, no way that they're the best team. They, if they were the best team, they'd be winning these teams by a lot more than, than what they're doing. Yeah, Auburn was a good example of, of that back in, um, well, really 2010 and 2013. Um, where they obviously played brutal schedules because Auburn always does, but they were still just kind of getting by. Like uh, 2010, uh, they beat Mississippi State by three. They beat a, a very mediocre Clemson by three, South Carolina by eight, Kentucky by three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and it really seemed like, you know, why are we taking them? Like, they're going to lose. Their luck's going to run out. But the funny thing that happened was they got better late in the year. So Interesting. You, can, you can still do that in some cases. Uh, and then they started blowing teams out in, in late October and Interesting. Into, uh, okay. November. So the numbers changed over time. Bill, just tough. to get your perspective on how good a quality football we're watching this year, do any teams that we're watching this year, if, if you were going to rewrite your book, The 50 Best College Teams of All Times, <laughs> are any of these teams in it? Uh, right now, Ohio State is. Um, wow. Like, wow. I, I wrote a thing for ESPN Chalk yesterday. Like, I, I surprised myself. I was looking at the numbers. Because uh, I mean, Ohio State's rating is in, like, the 37-point range uh, right now for SP+, meaning they're 37 points above the average team. I thought, man, that seems really That's high. That's a big number. Checked. And it's, like, 99.5 percentile right now in SP+. Well, That's, that would do it. That's the same as 2001 Miami, or no, 1995 Nebraska. 2001 Miami was 99.4 percent. Wow, jeez, um, no way up there. Best in the last 25 years, and you know, 2018 Alabama was up there too, and they didn't finish well. So it's it doesn't. It's not like they're they have to keep it up for another what four game, five games, I guess. But um, right now, what they have done so far, even adjusting for opponent, and, and they played kind of a sneaky, decent schedule. They haven't played an amazing schedule, but, you know, they, they played Wisconsin, which is 13th in SP+. They played Indiana 20th. They played Cincinnati 29th. They destroyed those teams. Right. They, they're making it look yeah. a little easier than it actually is. I think that's a fair, a fair way to think about it. Bill, listen, man, when I was thinking about talking to you this morning, I was thinking it felt a little bit like going to the therapist to talk to about my marriage because it's like, you know, it's like, I need a little help with my relationship with college football right now. This, this season, and I'm curious, is it me? Is it me or is anybody else having this trouble? This season seems, you know, college football is my thing. It's the thing I'm by far the most fired up about. And this season is like every week I look at the schedule and it's like there's like one game, there's two yeah. games, there's three games. This week, look at this week. This is a perfect example. The game this week is Penn State at Ohio State. And the line is 18 points. Yep. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. And so it, 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 has the playoff changed things? Am I just distracted? I'm flirting with in the NFL now. I'm flirting with the NFL. Oh, wow. oh it's terrible. And Man, so I, I'm just fine. wondering, Bill, is it me or is it something more systematic? Are, <laughs> yeah. you, are you experiencing any of this? And how can we explain it? Well, I, last year I experienced that a decent amount. Um, because That was, was so, so chalky. Blatantly. Yeah, chalkiest yeah. year ever. And so I'm feeling guilty because this is less chalky, right? I'm supposed to be excited about this generational Ohio State team and this sneaky, fantastic Clemson and the exciting LSU, which I am kind of excited about. Yeah. But it's as a season, it's like I, every week the schedule is like, what the heck? Yeah, and I mean, I guess I don't have as much historical context. I've not been in into college football as much but I, I this season's actually kind of pulling me in more ironically i feel like this I mean, is I think what i'm saying this part is... part of it is i think you know all this this inevitability of alabama kind right. of turned so me off of for that. several years and so maybe it opening up a little bit both kind of re, at least from my perspective regionally as well as like okay of, so you know, shane's saying it's yeah. me shane's saying it's me and and you're an expert here bill so i'm curious i'm, I'm curious well, what, and i don't have the same historical context for whether or not like you know i mean because i've always looked at college football as like a set of you know like there's one or two good games per week and the rest are blowouts type of thing yeah. so yeah. has that changed extreme this week's an extreme example of the scheduling, uh, and, and it's the week before Thanksgiving, so this week, this week's usually bad. Um, and last week wasn't amazing, but the couple weeks before that I really enjoyed. I think it was kind of a normal amount of big games then. So I don't think it's necessarily just been one a week all year, but I will say the one big change this year with LSU doing what they're doing 
is this seems to be the year in the just the life cycle of innovation where all the top teams realize, well, all, not Georgia, but everybody else, uh, that, you know, this, this, the offensive evolution that's happened over the last 10 or 15 years, it really does maximize our talents, and we should be doing that. And so once LSU did that, that means LSU's running pass-heavy spread. Alabama's running a pass-heavy spread. Ohio State's not running as much, but is, run, is, is still kind of a spread structure and has been for a while. Clemson's done that for a while. And so now we basically got a situation where all the top t- recruiting teams, most of their top recruiting teams, are implementing a style that maximizes their advantages. And so... You know, you're, if you're a college football fan or, and have been a college football fan for a long time, you immediately think of 2007 as the greatest year in the history of the planet when there was innovation and the top teams weren't doing what they should do. And it was a big It leveled it. Yeah, anybody. that's interesting. And this year, that's just not the case. You have Minnesota. You still have teams doing interesting things without blue chip recruits. But when the top teams are Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Georgia, and only Georgia isn't running this uh, a more wide open offense, then the, the teams with the most talent are going to win. You can't no, make up ground tactically on them. Really, really interesting point because because I've been thinking more about the concentration of talent part of that equation, mm-hmm. which we are we are seeing more concentration at the, the top yeah. top teams. But what you're saying is, yeah, but those guys are pairing all that talent with with innovative schemes. Whereas yeah. in the past, the contenders, the also rans, have been the ones with that innovation. And you know, Ohio State's a great example. I yeah. mean, as much as people laud Urban Meyer, that team has underperformed for years under him. And Ryan Day comes in here and takes it into this generational level, according to ESPN's numbers. And yeah. that, that we've seen for years, we've seen, you know, you hear about Alabama and Clemson. But if you look at the recruiting numbers, Ohio State has that same level of talent. They are the only other, they, them and Georgia are the teams that are at almost the same level. Really, Ohio State is the same level, but they've been underperforming. And so Ryan Day comes in, hires great coordinators, and all of a sudden they're fully, and then, the, then everyone, no one else has a chance but i think this is kind of the that you've just put your finger on the problem the separation between the top tier whether it's three four five teams the top tier and everybody else is so big that whenever one of the best second tier teams plays one of those top teams at the top team stadium it's an 18 point line right exactly. and, and that's a problem this is, this is historic because i mean penn state it's not like they're not full of blue chippers but, right, um, right. That's a very good but, team with a great quality. That's right. And I, a, I'm writing a, a preview for Friday. I've been sketching it out, and, and I, it's a lot more fun writing about matchups when one team has a weakness. And basically with Ohio State, is it's you know Justin Fields, because he's so used to his receivers being wide open, he doesn't have to think very much. And when they, on the off chance they aren't, he, free, he, he, he doesn't process necessarily quick enough. He takes some sacks. So great. So Interesting. Penn State sacks him 12 times. <laughs> And he loses like four fumbles. Then hey, they got a chance. Right, right. <laughs> so, Bill, let me ask a question: Is it? Do you really believe that these teams have changed their style? Let's like give me an example. Let's imagine Joe Burrow goes to the uh, goes to the NFL, which he will, and now LSU has a good quarterback, but not a great one. Is LSU going to still play this? Like, do you think they've now found the secret and drank the Kool Aid that they're going to play a more wide open style, or if their next quarterback is a mediocre one, they're going back to? slam and pound LSU. No, it really seems like it was a conscious decision on Ed Orgeron's part and and uh, Steve Insminger, his old uh, offensive coordinator, who was always a, you know the big burly man ball type too, um, that they decided like to catch up to Alabama, to catch back up to the big teams. We have to do this. And he'd been trying to get the right hires and the right personnel for a couple of years, but he's committed to it. Now, you lose Burrow, you lose a couple of these receivers. He's still going. I think Jamar Chase is a true sophomore, so he's coming back and he's absurdly good. Uh, the best like hands catcher I've ever seen. 
uh, in college. But so they're still going to have a four-star quarterback. They're still going to have at least a couple of these receivers, plus all the five-star backups. Like, they've always had blue-chip receivers. They've always had blue-chip quarterbacks. They just haven't really implemented a system that used them enough. And so, like, even if they drop off next year because they don't have Burrow and all the receivers, they're going to be good. They're going to be explosive, and they're going to be they're going to move the ball just fine on most teams. I, I'm pretty sure because they just have that much talent. And by the way, in the era of the portal, if they don't have a good quarterback in the wings, they can find one on the transfer wire. Yeah, I figure I figure they'll be in the market because I mean, Miles Brennan's been the backup for a couple of years, and he's a four star kid, and they have a four star kid redshirting. I'm pretty sure. But, yeah, if you get a little queasy about the experience level, then you can hit the market now. So, Bill, just in the last minute or so, give us a story you're interested in over the next couple of weeks. We're into rivalry weeks. We're into the conference championships. Give us a story that's outside the playoff or at least on the periphery of the playoff conversation that you're interested in that we should be paying attention to. Michigan's good mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's been, I, I wrote about that a little last week because I had all my followers um, yelling about how we're talking too much about the playoffs, so I basically gave them an opportunity in my Friday column of talking about everything that wasn't the playoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the top thing was, hey, Michigan, Michigan's been good for like three weeks now, mm-hmm. and now they've played a, a, some toss-up games here where they could absolutely – uh, you know they're they're eight and two. They could finish. They could beat Indiana, which is very tricky because it's in Bloomington. And they could maybe beat Ohio State. They can at least compete better than anybody else could. Like they have a chance to completely redefine what we thought their season was going to be. So that's pretty interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just kind of curious now, with from a numbers perspective, my numbers still think the AAC is basically one point below the ACC. Um, wow. And I don't know if that means Power Four or Power Six. It probably means Power Four this year. But um, right. that's been really oh, yeah. interesting to follow because I, you know, when I tweaked the SP Plus formulas about this time last year, like it ended up, they ended up being a lot more harsh to the G5, um, and it didn't matter. They're still tied with the ACC basically right now. Bill, so quickly. Keep that up in bowl season. Quickly, 10 seconds, top teams out of the AAC that we should be paying attention to. SMU is still really good, but Memphis, Memphis is top 15 in my numbers right now. Memphis wow. is explosive and ridiculous and, and just super fun to watch. Okay, SMU coming up to Annapolis uh, this weekend. Yeah. That'd be a fun thing to pop down and catch those guys. And Shane Bouchel, former Longhorn, playing quarterback, yeah. good quarterback right. for SMU. Billy C., thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Always enjoy. Thank you. That's Bill Connolly, college football writer for ESPN. You can follow him at ESPN underscore Bill C, at ESPN underscore Bill C. Fantastic writer and analyst in college football. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. To Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues here, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Adi is out today, but he'll be back. You guys can jump in here and be with us if you'd like. Give us a shout, one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 942-7866. Drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyball. Great way to stay in touch with us and the world of sports analytics. Just off the phone with Bill Connolly, longtime friend of the show, great follow in the world of football and football analytics. Bill Connolly with ESPN now. 
Rolling into the second hour of the show, delighted to have Jack Marucci join us. Jack is the head athletic trainer at LSU. You might have heard of those guys. They're having a decent year down there in football. Jack was the focus of an article. Jack and the work he does at LSU Leeds um, was the focus of a very interesting New York Times article earlier this season that caught our eye. And Jack is gracious enough to join us. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, guys. Where are you calling? Where are you calling in from this morning, Jack? Um, Baton Rouge. Uh, coming in, heading into work. We're an hour behind you guys, so we're uh, getting ready for another full day. Um, we play Arkansas this week. So. Yeah, I saw. I saw that line. It's like forty-two points or some absurd thing. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I said I don't. I don't remember the last time we had that big of a spread playing SEC team. It's incredible. So it kind of, uh, division yeah. rival. Division rival, 42 points. Well, last time I checked, LSU probably in pastures wasn't even predicted to score 42. So you can't win by 42 <laughs> if you don't score 42. That's, that's what I said. I said, just think if we did score whatever, you know, X amount of points. I mean, I said, that's, that's a lot of points. That's so, a lot uh, of points. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we're uh, like I said, we're pretty surprised for an SEC opponent to have that come up. But, uh you know, coach, coach, uh, oh, he knows how to keep the team focused, and hopefully we'll have another good performance. Well, listen, you guys, we, we, you caught our eye early, partly because I'm a, I'm a Longhorn alum, and we, 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 I was paying a lot of attention early in the season, but then this article came out, and it sounds, we're always interested in talking about sports science. We talk about, we talk to right. trainers from all over the world and all kinds of sports. It's nice to see this stuff happening in college football. And it sounds like you guys are kind of on the cutting edge of it, so we want to hear a little bit more about it. We want to hear some about your bat. We could do a whole session just on bats. Right. In fact, we might need right. to have you back just to talk about bats. But let's start with what your background is. What how, What is your training in, and how did you end up in this job at LSU? Uh, I, I grew up um, around western Pennsylvania. So I really? Grew up around Pittsburgh. All right. so we're from Uniontown, a small coal mining town mm-hmm. um, south of Pittsburgh. Uh, I went to West Virginia. Then, um, then I had my culture shock after that. I went to the University of Alabama for two years uh, <laughs> for a master's. Uh, then I, I worked a couple internships with the Cleveland Browns and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Then I uh, was at Florida State with Coach Bowden for eight years. When we had the good run, uh, I think it was a piece out the Bowden dynasty. It was kind of right in those uh, times. Uh, I had a lot of success. We, we were fortunate to win a national championship there. Then I came to LSU the summer of 96. So I've, you know, <clears throat> have experienced a lot of different coaches. Uh, been, very, been very fortunate. I'm a product of good programs. And I always tell people, well, everyone thinks you're a little bit better because you're with good teams. So right, for it's, sure. Uh, you know, it's a combination of everything. So, mm-hmm. um, but T- it's, uh, can, it's been a great place. Can you tell us in general what a trainer does in college athletics? Like, how would you describe your job? Most folks yeah. don't know what a trainer what it means, right. really. And I, and I think and ours is kind of expanded above and beyond just because we have a progressive coach. We have a coach that's been very innovative. Mm-hmm. So our background, you know, we're not – we're not there to strength train. Um, we do more of the medical. We do the rehabilitation. Yep. We do. We're the guys that go out on the field when they get injured. I guess is. Uh, I guess the, it's not a good time to see us out there. But uh, we have the. You know, a lot of coach says we have the pulse of the team because we deal with the players. Um, you know, day in day out, we 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 see them in, in a different light. So you know, sometimes we're part counselor. Mm-hmm. But our main goal is working with the physicians and identifying issues, um, working in conjunction, you know, with a lot of the, our backgrounds a lot in the orthopedic uh, world. Um, 
So we're basically uh, there to maintain the, uh, the health and the well-being of the student athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, what our role has grown here, we've we've really got into the research side. Uh, I'd say the last five six years, you know, we we were the one of the first schools to actually have sensors in the helmet to look at impact to the uh, brain itself. And a lot of that data was brought to attention with the NCAA. We were one of four presenters to show the information to basically eliminate uh, the two-a-days in in college football Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. because of the repetitive blows and we had enough data and, and enough clean data. So we've, we, you know, we're pretty proud that we were, uh, we contributed to, again, the uh, well-being of the student athlete. Yep. Um, so it's evolved into things, probably what you saw in the New York Times article. I think one of the <clears throat> couple of neat things that we've done is probably with the eyes and the eye tracking, um, which led to, to be uh, from the baseball world, where I was looking at hitters, where I would question the great hitters seeing how they see the baseball, what was their approach, um, looking at spray charts, studying those, and then you start looking at how the eyes can track onto the ball and what made one particular player <clears throat> hit the way he did versus the, uh, you know, the next hitter. So I, you know, I took it into the common sense world and, and said, well, wide receivers have to track football too. So there's probably – there's probably biases on how they, which way their heads turn, on how they <clears throat> track different directions, and trying to actually put them in routes that are most efficient for them. And then we looked at if there is some weakness, so let's, let's identify it. Maybe we can help some of those areas, but we still know that basically your DNA will dictate where your strengths are. So let's extract the strengths of these athletes. Let's put them in positions if it's route running. Um, that will allow them to um, see the ball in, in a way that uh, um, will give you a higher completion percentage. Jack, such, a, such me, an interesting example. So using technology, borrowing ideas from another sport. But one of the things that's right. most interesting to me about it is you're, you're talking about something that is really getting into the domain of coaching. And so there right. must be it, it a is, level of is. coordination no. and cooperation <laughs> inside the building that you don't usually see. Well, well, you're exactly right because you know everyone's going to have, you know, if, if you're dealing with a coach that's been around. Well, I've done it this way. I've always done it this way. And and usually when we hear that term, well, that's a bad term, <laughs> right? Know, because because you've done something that way. Or we've always done it that way. It's a pretty, you know, we we can look at things even in the medical world. I, I, I use this with coaches all the time when they, we do an injury report. Well, if you tell me that, um, well. If we if we have an injury to say the meniscus in the knee, we're going to do it the way we've always done it, and that means cutting open the knee. That means putting a large incision, extracting the cartilage, and obviously we don't do it that way anymore. We use a orthoscope. We take out probably just part of it. Guys can come back a lot safer, a lot quicker, mm-hmm. and a lot better. So. To say we've always done it that way. That's usually an alert. That, oh, it's it's, um, it's it's a weak it's a weak argument for doing the conventional thing. That just you're doing right. it just because it's the conventional thing. That's right. That's right. And it's usually because listen, people get older. They've they've done, and doctors are the same way. I mean, they get set to a set pattern. So uh, you know that's why our doctors have been open minded to all the different things that we've done, even from 
from the stem cells when the biologics that we've used and, and we've learned over time. Um, because it is, it is a, you know, you, you get older, you get set in your ways. Everyone's heard that term. And there's a lot of truth to it because they just don't want to learn more. I mean, they have their way. They've gotten away with it. Well, listen, Jack, that's that's more – it is getting older. It's also – it's part of the culture of some sports, and football is probably as guilty of it as any sport. And yet you're talking right. about a, an incredible degree of innovation down there at LSU. Right. And you're no young pup. So where where well, is it – I'm, I'm mid-50s. I mean, I'm not – you know, but, you but, know, I think that's – like I said, that's an excuse age is. You know, some, age should be your benefit. Age, you should turn it the other way uh, if you've done something a certain way. So you understand that, well, let's go explore it in, in another way. And I think that's where age can <clears throat> look at trends because, you know, you take everything in, age gives you the best experience because really what research is, we're trying to find trends in things. Well, give, give, let me, let, give us give us a, the origin story of some innovation. So, for example, I, the, in the article, something that jumped out to me was this this cold container you guys put on the practice field. So you're right. down there practicing in LSU. You, get, you know, fall camp is summer in Baton Rouge. Right. Are you kidding me? So what you guys yeah. come up with is a 40-foot shipping container with bleachers inside. Cool it down to 49 so guys can step over there and play. There could not be anything more different than traditional football. Think about the Junction boys that Bear Bryant, Bear Bryant right. ran his fall camp in Junction, Texas. Didn't give them water. So no. So where does where does that particular idea come from? Because that's open mindedness, and you don't usually yeah. see it. Well, I always say it's common sense. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was, as you said, down here, down here. There's a um, there's the heat is off the chart it's almost like i always say it feels like we're practicing on the equator mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. i swear to god we're on you know the serengeti plains or but so you know all those jokes but we know that we got to control the core temperature we know through research um that even through the military studies i don't care how tough you are if your core temperature is raised your efficiency to perform is really uh declines and we know that will make someone basically quit and it doesn't matter how tough really wow. tough wow. so i think that's that's the that's the most important part that we understand all that so we've we've always been obsessed with the core and temperature in the body and and we've we've used the pills where we can look at it individually where they you know <clears throat> we'll take a pill in the morning and we have a, the ability to look at what their core temperature is as they go through the activity so anyhow the the pill the yeah. pill radiates transmits the pill, the pill transmits the it core body transmit. good that's Lord. right and, okay. and we can just put a uh, a device right next to it and we can see where they're at so we we have again the ability to look at that so when we think about all these things and uh, you know there's a professor out in stanford who's been uh, really great to talk to and he found a lot of the core temperatures obviously radiate can come from the hands to cool the body efficiently but we all know if someone's out cutting grass on a hot day there's nothing better than going into an air-conditioned room mm-hmm. and cool the body mm-hmm. so we know that it'll refresh you um so one of the ideas was when i walked in to get ice out of the big ice bins we have I'm, we're thinking why don't we just have a big room like this wouldn't this make sense so uh paul boudreau uh, was was the individual who was able to launch the program, and we were just assisting him and giving him these ideas, and so came up with this 
device with a um, you know a, a high intense uh, cooling system in there that does have the bleachers where they can wrap their hands around the bleachers to cool the uh, palms of their hand and have air circulating. And when we have our breaks during camp or during the summer, it just makes these guys obviously a lot more efficient in, in to finish out the practice. And these guys loved it. I mean, we were able to pack them in there. Um, you can cool them down. We can hydrate them. And we were very very pleased at what we saw jack so, a lot a lot of a lot of traditional football folks would say you're making them weak that winning right, football requires right. character and strength and grit and it is character character is, is right i can talk to, i can talk to you about that matrix you know for for a while but that that's exactly right but remember we were we're reflective of what how we're going to play in the game if we're just trying to extend practice and make them tough and mill around that's how your body's going to perform. Your central nervous system adapts to how you practice during the week and how you – so when Coach Orgeron, and we love Coach Miles, but Coach Miles had more of an extended practice. To use that as an example, when Coach Orgeron took over, we've become very he, – he even cut practice yesterday, even more so. We, we didn't put the – full pads on we well well we did period. talk about the arkansas line so you know yeah, yeah. but we were going to do this regardless you know this is, was a scheduled deal and you know we're going to probably do it until we finish out the season because you just can't maintain that that type of intensity but what we've done uh, you'd say the same thing why are you short in practice well you, you said it you thought well they're not a tough team no this is for this is a cum- cumulative effect we're shortening practice because we can look at the GPS numbers. We can look at different uh, um, um, markers now. But we know that going back to the cooling system, it allows us to be a more efficient practice. We're going to practice faster. We're going to practice more efficiently. The You can retain information better um, because playing in a game, playing in a game, there's a lot – there's a lot more rest periods than you would have in practice. You got to remember, practice is reps one after another, one after another, one after another. Mm-hmm. So to have a break, well, guess what? That's our halftime. Mm-hmm. Someone wants to. So we're simulating what the game is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And and in practice, you don't sit down in the game. You're actually sitting down. So there's no there's a weakness there. So you have to know how to adapt to grit and toughness, and 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 and, and develop that in a multiple other ways mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be just dragging somebody not giving them water and i mean again we have to look at how <laughs> the body you know how efficient it is and you need those things to perform at a higher level mm-hmm. we're talking to jack so marucci somewhat further thinking i guess like we're talking to jack marucci in baton rouge louisiana jack is the head athletic trainer at the at lsu he's got a number of sports 21 varsity sports we've been talking about the college football innovations they've had down there so jack this is eric brad i wanted to ask you a question about that have you guys studied like what performance in practice is much is most predictive of what's going to go well in the game because one of the you know one of my favorite quotes you know which you'll relate to because of the story you just told was you know I, i since i'm 52 years old and i remember earl campbell 
And one mm-hmm. season they had him, you know, Bum Phillips, they interviewed right. Bum Phillips and said, Earl Campbell can't even run a mile. And Bum Phillips' famous quote, which I remember to this day, is, next time it's third and a mile, I won't give the ball to Earl Campbell. <laughs> and so, in, I mean, Bum I Phillips realized that he's not running a mile in the game. What do I care whether he can run a mile during the game? What's happening here has nothing to do with what's going to go on in the game. How do you guys think about that? We, we feel the same way. And, and he, it's, a, it's a very wise statement because – you can't train every athlete the same either. Um, a lineman, obviously, you know, they're going to move within the field five to six yards on average, on average. Um, so why train them? Why are they running a mile? Why are they, you know, is, is that is that the right way to do their conditioning test? The answer is no. Um, the only guys that, that you have to understand, you know, the wide receivers are completely different than even a, 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 say, a tight end. The wide receivers are even different than the DBs. The DBs perform everything almost, they have to be really reactive. So you have to look at them in a different light, too, because they're always backpedaling. Then they have to shift. So you have, you're looking at more groin activity. They're firing their groin because the way they have to plant and react to the receiver. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think, you know, by, by training guys, Errol Campbell isn't going to be first in a mile. Errol Campbell needs first and 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 and, and ten or you know second and and third. And you know when Merle Campbell, I remember another piece Bo Jackson did uh, when they had the uh, uh, his football life story. It talked about same thing. He told the coaches he was smart enough to know if you guys want to run the thoroughbred during practice. And, 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 and wear me out before the, the big race, go ahead. I'm not going to be that efficient. Mm-hmm. Just allow me to you tune me up during the week and let me go. Mm-hmm. So, Jack, so that was one of his big things. Yeah, no, I, I remember Bo Jackson's quotes, too. Um, given you mentioned Bo Jackson, we obviously had the first thing when I saw Tua Tagovoa, if I've even got his name, <laughs> having close to right, when I saw his injury and they mm-hmm. said it's his hip, the first thing I thought was Bo Jackson right, when Jackson. he got pulled down from behind the dislocated hip, which basically ended his foot. But did it ended his football career? Obviously, you're not. You haven't examined Tua, but could you just right. tell us about that injury and the severeness of a dislocated hip injury, and you know yeah. what you even think about when you hear something yeah. like that? And the it's very rare, very rare, and I, we've never had one in the thirty some years I've been around the game. But you know. It could happen at any time. As you saw, it was just where he was bringing his knee forward, and it drove it in the, in, into the ground. So what happens, the hip has an impact that goes up into, they call it your acetabulum, or your cartilage that goes up into the hip, and he had a, a dislocation. And so they, they went back and, and, and put it back. I think the difference in these two injuries, they were able to, I think Bo Jackson, if I believe, I think he continued to play. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, that's he right. did. He worsened. He did. I, I think so. And where there was no time to go in, and, and listen, they didn't. I don't think they probably did as much scopes even in the hips back then. I don't even know if there was MRI back then. Right. So now you can look at all the um, the structure, and they went right in. They looked at it. They get everything back in place. So it sounds like he should have a pretty good outcome. Mm-hmm. And. Um, you know, it always comes up to me. I'm sure there's going to be an article somebody's going to write out there. Well, this, this young man never made any money, and you know the school and and, and 
you know, we're going to look at that side of it too. But people are very misinformed on what college athletes get today. And I always tell people, nobody makes anybody go to college to play football. Nobody's here. <laughs> Our guys are very appreciative here, and we, we talk about this. Mm-hmm. No one makes them come here to play. Mm-hmm. Who, who says they have to come? So our athletes here, they get close to twenty three, twenty four hundred dollars a month. The food as a, now as a stipend allows you to feed as, as a, a stipend, stipend per month. That okay. does not tell Pell, Pell Grant. Pell Grant, that's another additional to be up to six grand. Listen, guys, that's tax free. That's tax free money, and, and we don't. We're not even mentioning they get a free, you know, education. Then mm-hmm. the clothing they get. There's a very large value to that. So, not none of our guys ever complain about. They have enough money. They they can they can actually a lot of these guys have cars they can put on their you know they they buy they get the uh, monthly payment. So well, athletics has changed a lot. I, it drives me crazy again. An old adage you hear a lot of these former athletes are all oh, these guys need to be paid and this and that. I think the likeliness there's probably something there with it, with the EA Sports and hey that's great and maybe there should be a stipend if they graduate then you have a big pool of money. But, I mean, those things can be talked about. But I think the narrative of, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be stories. This guy didn't make any money. And it's their choice. No mm-hmm. one has to go to college. Mm-hmm. Remember that. <laughs> so it's <laughs> also, it's, it's these high-profile examples of people. I mean, the average the average athlete might get his his value back. But the, the right. guys at the very top, the two is of the world, if they could receive free market compensation, would be paid so much more than even the things that you're coming up with. But that's just, you know, right. those, that's the top of the distribution, and those things get right. redistributed in the, in the current that's system. Right. Listen, Jack, we want to hear a little bit about, you've got yeah. 20, 20 other varsity sports, and we know sports right. science is making a big difference in some other places. Can you give us an example of something that's going on at LSU in one of your non-football sports that you think is especially interesting or new or that you you're know, excited one, about? One thing we picked up on, we, did a, we, did a, we do sweat studies. Obviously, we're in the climate to look at it. And we found out that the amount of sodium, and it's really sodium-based, you know, we talk about all these electrolytes, potassium, magnesium. We found that sodium is one of the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of misleading on how much you lose. And sodium's always had a kind of a bad name. Mm-hmm. So we, we've looked at, you know, we have sand volleyball. We have, um, we also have tennis. There was a tennis individual, so it's a good story, where, we're able to help them is that they had a player that was um, cramping uh, during the event. And this was during the indoor season. And you're thinking, well, is he sweating that much or, and everyone's different, you know, the way they, you know, sweat or um, the way they, you know, perspire to look at everybody's makeup. So he was cramping quite a bit. And, and there's different types of cramps. You can have cramps from anxiety. There's overuse of the muscle. And there's the hydration piece, uh, the sodium piece. So we examined, went over there and did a, uh, a sweat study on him. Uh, we looked at uh, what we could find to resolve the problem. And sure enough, his, he had a large, um, there was a large volume of sodium that was lost. So we basically got it approved. And, and, and Campbell's soup, believe it or not, there's been a lot of studies with it. There is a high sodium content in it. Mm-hmm. So we had him eat Campbell's soup before the match, and it resolved his, his cramping. <laughs> wow. There's a low-tech solution. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a marketing uh, opportunity right there, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> then the other 
I think big impact was our swim team. Here's another item that has been done because we've always done it. They swimmers typically get up in the morning. They they get up around I don't know five o'clock, four thirty-five. I think is the general time, and they have a training session. They swim. Then they come back in the afternoon and do it again. So common sense would tell us there's no recovery there. Mm-hmm. Why has that always been that same <laughs> program? Maybe we can try something different. So our team got together, and our team, we have a great immunologist. He was with NASA, Guillaume Spillman, uh, for the last five, six years. Um, uh, Neil Johansson, Dr. Johansson, uh, great physiologist. So we've kind of put our heads together. Well, let's look at the immune system. Let's look at cortisol levels. Let's look at all these things and see how it, how their performance is. Sure enough, as we thought, cortisol levels are way up. Mm-hmm. Immune systems are way down. Mm. So all the things that we knew that you can that you can test for. And so the swim program has slowly, because it's a hard change for a lot of these guys, and a lot of these kids come out in these programs, they almost become – you know, become almost in a trance that they feel like they have to do all this training that way okay. into the fact that they have to, you know, I don't feel good if I don't train twice a day. It's almost, I don't want to call it brainwash, but the brain will adapt and feels like it's the need to do that. Mm-hmm. So we have seen a lot better performances once they start cutting back and they start on and, and, and X amount of days, they only do one a day. So we have seen changes in that. And I think that's a big impact. And I would love to see that continue to go forward because that can make a big difference in all these swimming programs that, you know, having kids getting out. Sorry, there's a train going through here. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's a, I think that could be a big, big impact. And um, to look at the performance side. And, and, and we've already seen, we've already seen, you know, some great changes and, and better times and, so it just really takes the first program to do it, then then it allows maybe others to come back and look at it. But that is a tough one. The uh, swimming world has been done a certain way. They have trained a certain way. Right. But but also the sleep part, which when we studied sleep, and this is where I had the idea for these pods in our locker room. We have these, you know, they look like I got the idea from first class airplane seats for our players <laughs> to basically have an area they can come in, they can do treatment in there, they can do recovery in there, they can do, um, um, they can they have their places for hydration, they can watch film, um, because even if it's 20 minutes and, and these guys don't have to drive all the way home and, and, and don't get enough recovery time, um, I, I think I estimate around 53 minutes could be lost from traveling back and forth. Mm-hmm. just to take a nap in the apartment. But back to the swimming piece, if we can help them with their sleep, we know what what um, advantages that has. As these young adults' brain development up until 25, um, we know that they do need to sleep in. So let's not make all these guys get up early. Let's not make all these guys and girls get up too early and, and, and affect the way the body recovers because we know sleep is a natural growth hormone and we know it, it, that's how the, the body can can uh, adapt and heal itself so sleep is such a such a key piece to it and um, we know through the circadian rhythms and 
we know the brain is the most alert around 9 o'clock to 10.30 when we can absorb most information retain it. And I believe, don't quote me on I believe Stanford and Duke and some other schools have pushed back their classes until 9 o'clock mm. to get the most efficiency right. out of that. Right. You know, if you think about anybody that wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning, your brain isn't going to retain that much information. You're still, it's just, that's just part of the, 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 the sleep cycle. Jack? So, Last question for you coming off of this. The, you know, I can't imagine it's too hard to convince a student athlete that they need to get more sleep. Or here's a, here's a nap, here's a nap pod. Just go over there for a little right. bit. But there are some, yeah. some changes you're talking about that it's not as clear. What do you see? We've talked about the challenge of convincing coaches in particular to do some things differently, like not swim them twice a day. That, right. That's a big challenge. But what about on the, on the athlete side? Do, do you see the current generation of student athletes more interested in this, open to this, up for experimentation, yeah. up for swallowing I, I pills? I will tell you this for sure. I will tell you, ours are all for it. They've seen the benefits. They've seen the changes. They've seen the changes in how we practice. They've seen – we also have developed – we're talking about hydration. We don't really – have water fountains. We worked with Powerade and Coca-Cola to develop these devices that they have. It's all based off electrolytes. It's based off of their profile, how, how many carbohydrates. So all those studies has made it more efficient where they can go and get a drink that has X amount of electrolytes in it, X amount of sugars, so on and so forth with a great taste. But it also is hydrating them and making them more efficient. Mm -hmm. All the research is put into these pods, which they use more than anything in the facility. It's changed the way our, you know, our dietitians look at things. It's the way our chef will prepare the foods. Um, so they see the benefits. Mm -hmm. That's why when we talk about our research, it's applied research and we're not sitting waiting for 10, 12 years to get a result. We have, we have the capability to do something fairly quick and and we can put it into we can put it into uh, action as we mm -hmm. would say. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these guys have seen that. It's not like so they they are willing. They always love what's the next innovative piece. Mm -hmm. They love to having that cooling tank because of what we looked at. All right, my so gosh. That's how you have to look at that. It's not. And, and listen, if there's ways, and some people would say, well, you're, you're doing all this and you're prodding. Well, if the if the if the Technology is out there, and we don't use it. We're we're guilty for not using it. Mm -hmm. if, if we can make this thing a lot more mm -hmm. efficient, so that sounds right. Because, yeah. Listen, Jack, appreciate you taking the time. You got a lot going on down there right now. Terrifically yeah. interesting to talk to you. Wish you the best with your work, yep. and we're we're enjoying watching the football team this year. So good luck with the rest well, of the season. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. All right, Thanks. that Jack Marucci, head athletic trainer at LSU, talking sports science in the football program and beyond. He's got twenty one varsity sports down there in Baton Rouge. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, my longtime friends and collaborators here 
at Wharton Moneyball. Audie will be back. Audie Weiner will be back. You guys can jump in here. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We had to turn a phone call down during that last interview. We had a phone call from Austin, Texas. Suspicious 512 area code on a question about cramping. I can't imagine can't imagine what a 512 area code question about cramping would have been for the LSU for the LSU head trainer. We're going to let that one ride for a little while. We're going to come back and talk to Marucci about that down the road. Jack Marucci, head athletic trainer at LSU. What do you guys think? They're doing some ridiculously interesting things down there. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's. I mean, it's another great example. I'm always intrigued by kind of the, how slowly cultures change, like like how cultures kind of adapt to innovation, and sort of hearing things like just having an air conditioned unit on the field. It kind of, I mean, it makes it, it seems obvious in retrospect that that would be something that a the players would really enjoy, and b would probably make for more efficient practices. But it's clearly it's kind of in this year 2019 that's still a very innovative concept right 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 i was just intrigued All, the word innovation came to my mind but also the word he talked about efficiency yeah and that's the way i thought about what he was talking about which was you know you want to be efficient it varies by which type of player they now have sensors on people yeah. they can test you know not just speed but also core temperature um I just think it's going to be fun when there's a day where it actually happens during the game because I'm hoping it leads to less injuries in in these types of sports. You know, when people have sensors on them and you can tell someone's body temperature is raised, it has to raise the probability of injury. And so I'm hoping we get to that point. And I think just the sorry, just the recognition of like how personalized medicine has to become and how personalized training has to become. And and I mean, he was we didn't really get into it unfortunately, but like you know, he was talking even with the eye tracking and stuff like that. How personalized scheming might have to might have to become and like you know if you want to kind of get that extra edge of efficiency it, I'm, I'm just really impressed with the degree of innovation down there and the degree of buy-in mm-hmm. there seems to be and yeah. coordination because trainers trainers usually trainers that work for like a different part of the organization than the coaches and the snc guys and the, the strength and conditioning guys are tied in with the coaches and there can be a real tension between training staff and S&C and the, and the coaches, and these guys seem to be really integrated. They, the kind of openness they have speaks really well of the culture and the and the, and the leadership down there because that is uncommon. It's, it's really interesting how the narrative has changed because, you know, two years ago, if you had asked people which top program coach is innovative or – I don't think Coach Ogeron would have been right. listed in people's top 50. Right. They would have said, old school football, run them into the ground kind of thing. And now you're even hearing Jack talk about, you know, it starts with Coach O. And, yeah, you know, all, I thought, I just think the whole yeah. narrative has changed, yeah. which is impressive for him. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, it's consistent with what we're seeing on the field and right. the schemes, obviously. But you, you wouldn't necessarily know that, that, that it would work across the entire program. But offensive scheme and training, both highly innovative and on the cutting edge of what's going on out there. What else around college football is while we're on there, you know, we talked a little bit in the op- on the opening remarks, but the this this weekend we've got is it who, who, do we have anything else floating around that's interesting? There's just not much going on. There are some rivalry games, but we're not interested in like Pittsburgh Vatech this year. That's just not something that is capturing a lot of attention. So there's it's it's a kind of a, a, lo- a little bit of a lull in the college football world. We're we're gearing up though for an interesting playoff selection. And then the, the, the kind of the peak of the season is going to be this four-team playoff, which is going to be the strongest set of teams we've seen yet in the yeah. playoff era. I guess, I'm, I guess I wasn't aware until you said it that um, Ohio State still has to play Michigan. And so I'm not. I, I believe that game's in Ann Arbor too. I could be wrong. I, but I it think is. Yeah, I think it is too. So now, if you it's think, like it'd be like a ten-point line. Or no, something. no, it's yeah. fine. But I'm saying if you think about 
what Ohio State has to do. People say, well, they're going to – I mean, you're probably right. They're very likely to beat Penn State. They're very likely to beat Ohio, uh, Michigan. They're very likely to beat Minnesota. Let's say they're the, you know, the other Big Ten champion. But for those to be your last three games, let's make it clear, it's not like they're playing teams 50 and below. That's right. Those are three legitimate top 25 yeah. teams by anybody's ranking, yeah. maybe even more generous than top sure. 25. They've got a tough road. Oh, you're yeah. right. I agree. They're not playing LSU. They could probably lose one of those, though, and still be in the playoff, right? I mean, it's not... They're, they're, they've looked impressive enough that it, they're probably, as a one-loss team... Unless they get completely creamed by Minnesota or something, I, not going to knock li- themselves out of contention. I'd say right? more likely than not. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if they lost, the, it'd be interesting for them to lose the Big Ten championship, and yeah. then the committee still takes them. But I, I, I would, unless they lost in some embarrassing fashion, I agree that that's Can probably what a, would happen. Just a quick question on that: Is there any chance that if Minnesota beat Ohio State in a close Big Ten championship game, that they take Ohio State and not Minnesota? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would bet on it right now. Well, I just want to say it again for our listeners. I just want to make <laughs> yeah. sure again. Minnesota beats Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game, and Ohio State goes and Minnesota doesn't. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just want least, to make sure I said what we- It's at least a reasonable chance, and I think it would be even likely. But remember that they, what they say their task is is choosing the best teams. Sometimes that gets blended into some combination of best and most deserving but what they say their task is is best and the committee has surprised at least me in the first five years the extent to which they have done that mm-hmm. they have stayed pretty close to trying to pick you the expect best, the them best, to be, fo- you, best you you've expected them to be them to be more outcome focused but they actually have and, not and, and, been so much and in your, and rewarding things yeah. like conference championships right and they don't seem to reward conference championships very much so I, i'd love to see the scenario because it'd be interesting to see what they did but i would kind of because if you know how power rankings work and you know betting lines and right we, minnesota could clip ohio state this weekend, next weekend, they'd still be fifteen point underdogs. Mm-hmm. But just just to be just to do the comparison between there and the SEC, there's no chance if Georgia beats, let's say LSU in the championship game, that LSU goes and Georgia doesn't go. There's no chance there, just because of the strength of Georgia. I, I'm trying to draw the parallel it, between Minnesota beating great, Ohio great, State and Georgia beating LSU. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. If it happened this week, I would say no because Georgia only has one loss. But if they put another loss or two on their schedule and then did that. Then we'd be back in the same scenario where the, you, I could see them not a two-loss Georgia team yeah. beating LSU, not actually going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 But All right, right, that's now my they're... new doomsday. That's my new scenario of why we need eight teams. That's <laughs> what I real. I want both of those things. I to feel happen. like you 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 need a doomsday scenario <laughs> to get you through the college football season. <laughs> well, I don't if, know. They, if there were some better games going on, maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> no, that's true. True enough. What what's going on around the NBA? We're we're slowly growing into the season. We're beginning to be able to see some mm-hmm. separation on teams. Anything jump out to you? Um, LeBron is still the greatest player on the planet. Well, how yeah. about this? How about this stat as of last night? He's the only player in the history of the league to throw up a triple double against every other team in the league. But that's incredible. Well, that's a fun stat. Be careful. Okay. So, what so well, for example, um, a player who played for only one team cannot have that stat. So, mm-hmm. for example, Magic Johnson just played for the Lakers, so he can't have that. He can't have had it against how the Lakers. How many teams did he have it against Magic? I don't know the number. So it's a great idea in theory. But I, know, I wonder how I, but he did. I know, well, as an example, Russell Westbrook has done it against every other team except for OKC, who is the only team he okay. played for. Okay. So okay. he's about okay. to get there when yeah. they play. Very off. important nuance. Good. But, but Good. either way, um, I just the, the part that struck me is when you look at the NBA championship. Betting so real odds, quickly, give yeah. me what, at what rate do these guys 
have triple doubles? I mean, how many games a year is LeBron throwing up a triple double? How many games a year does Russell Westbrook yeah, have a triple double? Yeah, that's the double? top well, ones. Well, Westbrook, as you remember, averaged a triple double for two straight seasons. So he had, I think, he broke the record. Um, I think he had fifty. So more than half of them. He had more than half wow. the games. Okay. Yeah. This year right now, the Lakers have played 14 games, and I think LeBron has five triple-doubles uh, so far. What do you think Magic's rate was? I think Magic had so – I know the answer. I think Magic had something like – I may have this number wrong – something like in the 80s for his career. I'm sure Matt could bring it up on the yeah. screen, which would which mean if he played lower. 15 seasons. No, he might have averaged five a year. Yeah, yeah. He might have averaged somewhere in the neighborhood yeah. of five. He wasn't the triple. scorer that Russell was. Yeah. And, and actually, in Magic's case, you know, it's actually the hardest number to get, actually – it's not easy to average 10 assists a game. It's not that easy. Even for to, Magic Johnson? Even for Magic Johnson, there were a lot of seasons he didn't average 10 assists a if game. If Magic okay. Johnson couldn't do it with, like, Kareem in the I middle know, there or whatever, then I don't, I don't, I, it must be very, very difficult to do. Right, right, right. All right, other than, other than LeBron? Well, the thing that struck me was I think most people, at least as of now, the top two teams in the NBA and the West appear to be the Clippers and Lakers. Mm-hmm. I think most people would agree that as of now. The top two teams in the East. Let's just imagine it's the Bucks and the Sixers. At least the Celtics making a strong case, make, but, but probably overperforming right now. The only reason I was bringing that up is if you look at the betting odds, the Clippers and Lakers are both three times as likely as the Bucks and the Sixers, roughly, to win the NBA championship. Now that surprises me a little bit for two reasons. One is, well, the Clippers and the Lakers are going to have to play each other, so only one of them can mm-hmm. come out of the West. Second, yeah. I think most people would think the the depth in the West yeah, is yeah, much stronger Rockets, than the depth yeah. in the East. J- and so why is it because... No, I, they so, must be really over-favoring. Like, it must be a point. Golden State-type thing where exactly. they're really... You know, they they're sort of saying the West is probably like eighty or ninety percent likely in the championship to win. That's the that's the only explanation yeah. sitting that here. Seem right. too high. Well, it does. That, it does to what, me as well. So yeah. I, you know, I it was I, it, it was too high when Golden State was actually doing it. Right. Well, and now we don't really have. I mean, the Clippers and Clippers look fantastic, and I'm kind of glad it's not just Golden State dominating again. But even in the height of Golden State's dominance, they were overfavored. Well, I think. they they got beaten by yeah. the. They got beaten by the Cavs. And yeah. almost got beat by the Thunder. They almost yeah. should remind us that these things are over Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so all I was commenting on is it seemed yeah. like them being three times the favorite of the East, given the I lack of depth that. in the East. It must be explainable by when, the, if they get there, they're going to get almost guaranteed. Yeah. So, fellas, we'll talk about the lineup for the weekend in a moment. But broadly, what's going on in the NFL? We haven't talked a lot about the NFL this show. I mean, other than the fact that, well, for example, everyone's talking about the Ravens. Th- we just yeah. bumped, we just bumped the Ravens to number one. They, yeah. they, they've they've nicked the Pats. They've knocked the Pats out of the number one spot for the first time since week one. And it's it's not just Lamar and this and this offense is kind of turning heads. No, their defense has been spectacular. Their as defense well. has started playing well. They were after four weeks, they were like 29th in the league by yeah. traditional measures, and now they're way up there. They've gotten some guys back, and well, they, they and they've rattled really well. off some impressive victories against some good teams, like you know beating both the pay. I mean, being the Bengals, who cares? But like you know, being the Patriots and the Texans, two of the last three games, and, and it's they, really impressive. And, and they manhandled the Texans. <laughs> I mean, that was I was kind of excited for that game. It ended up not being such an exciting outcome. I've tried to put my finger on why yeah. it is that I'm more interested in the NFL this year than I have been in the past. Part of it may be because I'm a little disappointed with college football, but there just seems to be a number of interesting teams. There's not one clearly dominant team. Any number, there's like a lot six of teams really, and then there's a lot of really exciting quarterbacking play going on in this season. I mean, it's really, right. I mean, you know, having, I mean, 
Because, you know, last season we got got hyped. Oh, my goodness. We're going to get hopefully watch this guy Patrick Mahomes play for the next 10 years. Now we're getting you, – you can get extra hype because you're like, well, I mean, I, I'm not looking forward to the Patriots not being top of the post. But if you told me the next 10 seasons I get to see, you know, people like Lamar Jackson Pat, go up against Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, that's incredibly exciting football. Never mind Russell Wilson. Dak never Prescott. mind Russell Mason. <laughs> never mind that Aaron Rodgers is still looking good and stuff like that. There's a lot of really Dak Prescott. There's a Deshaun lot of Watson. really exciting quarterbacks. Play. Yep. The only disappointing thing for me in the NFL right now is at least, except if you eliminate the um, AFC South, where you know you never know who's going to win that yeah. division. Um, everything else seems like, like in the NFC, maybe the Rams, who are six and four, end up catching the Vikings or the Seahawks for a wild card spot. But in some, in some sense, the NFC is almost is getting close to being set the for which teams, may, yeah, at least which teams make the playoffs. The AFC, as I said, if you eliminate the AFC South, but you, I mean, you've drugged the Eagles away. Or you've drugged no, the, no, no, no. I said, I said, there's not going to be two teams out yeah, of the one, NFC one East. Of the one NFC, team yeah. out of the NFC East is going yeah. to. Come I mean, out. basically, the NFC Wild Card race is almost over in a, in, unless in the essence. Rams can catch the Seahawks or the Vikings. I you see. know, so you've got you've got a couple things like the Cowboys or Eagles. One of those two teams will make the playoffs, but only one. And so I, I think y'all are being a little too definitive. We've got some weeks to play yeah, yet, and there's a true. lot there's a, there's a lot of bouncing around. There's a lot of noisy outcomes in the NFL. Mm-hmm. No, it's no, it's true. I mean, I, these races aren't necessarily over. I mean, the Steelers could make a run, for example, in the AFC. They could absolutely yeah. they could. And then you're saying in the AFC, what what do we think about the Chiefs? You know, they've had this weird period without Mahomes. Their defenses look shaky. Then they go out and get four picks against Rivers. I mean, do, uh, how serious do you think they are as competitors for the Pats the, and Ravens? I can only speak again. There's still six more games to go, or in their case, five more games to go. I watched most of that game. They were thoroughly outplayed by the Chargers in that game. If, if Phillip Rivers doesn't throw really, really bad picks in that game, the Chargers win that game. Yeah. I mean, the Chargers were up maybe 3 nothing, 6 nothing to start the game, and I think at one point they had 250 yards of offense. The, the Chiefs had 30 or 40. I mean, Mahomes woke up in the second half, but I'm telling you, the Chargers out— you talked about box score like in mm-hmm. tennis— Every statistic in that game, except for Phillip Rivers throwing four picks, the Chargers outplayed the Chiefs yeah. in that game. So I'm not that bullish right now because I don't think the Chargers are an elite team. Well they, they, well, they clearly aren't. So what's going on with the Chiefs? I mean, it wasn't six weeks ago that we thought they were setting the world on fire and they were going to run into the AFC cha- – they were walking to the AFC championship. Well, I think in the, right now they've had a huge number of injuries. Yeah. So, for example, Tyreek Hill – Got injured during the game, pulled his hamstring a little bit. He'll probably be back, but I'm saying he basically didn't play. So what you then started to see was, this happens to lots of teams. So now Patrick Mahomes has nobody open, let's call it 25 yards the field and down. So now everything's underneath, everything's slant yep. routes. So now all of a sudden, San Diego's corners are looking great because, you know, they don't really, I'd say it, they don't have to worry about the deep ball as much, except for Sammy yeah. Watkins, who played in the game. There's no kind of elite speed just because of injuries. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, and so, I mean, I'll just counter argue and say that the Chiefs have had a lot of injuries and a lot of defensive variance, let's say, in performance, but they've managed to mostly win through it, you know, and, and, I think that I mean I still think the Chiefs are a very dangerous team. I would not be surprised at all if 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 they end up in the, the Super Bowl. The only challenge that we talked about, we shouldn't have talked about it off air, but here it is. Right now, it's likely they're at best the three seed. Mm-hmm. So yep. if they're the three seed, for, first they have to play an extra game. Let's start with that. 
Then they have to play at the two seed. Let's assume for the moment that's the Ravens. Yeah. So they're going to go into the Ravens and beat the Ravens. Then they have to go into New England and beat New England. I don't see it. It's a tough road. It's a tough road. But I mean, if any team could kind of pull it off, it could I think be it is that one. But that that's always an interesting subplot late in the season about who's going to get that first and second seed. That for yeah. the first week by in the playoffs is so valuable. In the AFC, it looks a little less interesting. In the NFC, you still have five teams, any one of which could could oh, land. Oh yeah, in, no, in that's right. Yeah, the funny part about Seattle is had they, uh, I'm sorry, San Francisco, they barely won last week against the Cardinals. Had they lost that game, they would they had they would have slipped from the one seed to the five yeah, seed in the exactly. West. Yeah. So one loss, but it's so slipped interesting. Them. And by the way, they're they're coming out to Baltimore, I think, next weekend. So they've got they've got some games. Oh, to Baltimore's play. schedule coming up is brutal. So we're really going to see that team. We're gonna, we're going to learn something about it. All right, fellas, we're walking into the final stretch now. Moneyball matchups. All right, Eric Bradlow, got about three minutes to run through this. What do you got? All right, so Shane, you get to, what? What game caught your eye, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm excited for the Thursday night game. I can think Colts Texans. I think that's going to. It's obviously a very important uh, and impactful game for the kind of the division race in the FC South. The FC South, as you alluded to, every year, who knows with that division, man? I mean, I could argue my way into any one of these teams still at this point in the season winning that division. And just quickly. The Ravens, Texans, when the Ravens route the Texans, does that say more to you about the Ravens, or does that say more to you maybe the Texans aren't as good as we thought? I think the Texans aren't as good as we thought. I mean, I think specifically that J.J. Watt injury is going to cumulatively degrade. You know, I think that's going to have an impact on their defense. And Deshaun Watson is a, is a god. I love watching him, but he cannot do it alone. So they're a three-and-a-half-point favorite in that game, and we make them five-and-a-half. So we like them even more against Indianapolis. But, of course, Indianapolis finally got their their quarterback back and they're an interesting team to watch this year i'm gonna go with the seattle philadelphia game that was gonna be the sunday night game it got bumped in 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 subordination to green bay and san francisco which is reasonable but seattle philadelphia because it's so important to both teams if philadelphia is going to make a run they need to win tough games like this but man we're seeing peak russell wilson it's so fun to watch the Eagles are actually favorite in this game. They're two-point favorites. We'd make it a toss-up, but they're two-point favorites. It's going to be super interesting to see what – that's an early game on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, it's a must-win for the Eagles. Yeah. I mean, they could – well, it's only, it's not a must-win because I'll pick my game. Um, I don't think the Cowboys are winning this week. Uh, uh, they're going to New England. Yeah. And um, I – I just don't like that matchup. I'm, I'm feeling like, more comfortable about the Cowboys coming to Foxborough than I was about the the I mean uh, than yeah. the Patriots playing in in Philadelphia. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I also in my a, the market does as well. Six and a half point line there favoring the Pats. Yeah, all I was going to comment on is um, I give about a ten point edge just to Belichick over Jason Garrett. So I think that's a, that's already where, where's that in the uh, Massey Peabody you know, system? No, I, I wish we did have it in there. And you were yeah. making this point real nice last last week as we talked about the Texans coming up to the Ravens. Yeah, you the thought Bill the coaching O'Brien. staff, Bill O'Brien, Harbaugh, and more broadly, you know, Ravens versus uh, Texans coaching staff is worth. It. Now they didn't need that edge, it turns out, but it's an interesting thing to think about. And, and you remember the old the old pregame pre-show, like you know. Um, Oh, Jimmy the Greek doing Sunday night. Yeah, exactly. they, would, they would check off each line. Who's got the advantage on offensive line? Who's got the advantage? And they coaching. didn't have coaching. Coaching should have been a line there. And so g- given that, it's it's worth thinking about, you know, maybe over this week, which coaches would you not, w- going up against Belgics, which coaches would you not think it would be an important factor? Yeah, right. That's Harbaugh good. would be yeah. one of them. But yeah. let me just comment. Last two games are interesting. 
Packers 49ers will say a lot about who the one seed is going to be in the West. And, yeah, of course, Ravens-Rams. If the Rams lose oh, yeah, that, that game the Rams, and they slip, if this is the Rams Ra- are in must-win territory they for all of They have to win that game. Exactly. So that's a three-point favorite to the Ravens, and everyone's assuming they're going to win the game. But that's not the way it I works don't assume in the NFL. That. It's no. not the way it works in the NFL. No. Stuff happens, and that's going to be more interesting, I think, than people think. That Green Bay-San Francisco, the Niners are favored by three. Green Bay needs to make a stand if they're gonna if they're gonna take a run at that at that top seed. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Money about two hours of sports analytics that we do Wednesday mornings, every Wednesday morning, eight to ten. Many thanks for listening. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins, associate producer, Zach Drapkin, assistant producer, and the big boss man producer, Maddie D. Thank you all the way around from Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, from the absent Audie Weiner. We're thinking about you, buddy. Come back next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports.